Today's show is brought to you by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. Producing quality content at a high volume is hard. And with newsfeed algorithms constantly shifting and audience platform preferences changing seemingly overnight, media companies need to stay agile in order to be on top. That's why content production teams at places like Time Magazine use Airtable. It's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everything on schedule and to let creative people be creative. Visit Airtable.com slash Digiday today to get $50 in free credits. Hello and welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. On this week's episode, I am joined by Richard Jingris, the Vice President at Google News and a veteran of both the publishing and tech worlds. Each week I have publishing executives on invariably talking about the big tech platform, so it's nice to put their concerns to a platform exec, although Richard cautions that lumping platforms together is a big mistake. We talk about whether Google really has a responsibility to build a sustainable publishing ecosystem, how Google can assist publishers building direct reader revenue, and much more. Hope you enjoy it. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I have so many guests here week after week talking about Google and Facebook that it is amazing to have someone from Google here that I can now turn all the questions on. Fair enough. Okay. So the number one thing that I often hear is the question about what is Google's stake in finding a sustainable model for publishing? That's a great question. You know, and I, I do get asked that once in a while because they say, you know, like we announced a Google News initiative and say, like, well, why are you doing these things? Is because you want to, you know, have better relationships with publishers and, and, and assuage your critics. I mean, neither one of those are bad objectives, but they're not the primary objective. Uh, I like to think, yes, we have some sense of societal value of journalism in open societies. That's important. But I think it's also important to recognize just the nature of our business, right? I have been frequently these days challenging folks when they use the term platforms as a generic, because it's not, right? The platforms, are, particularly the ones we typically refer to, are dramatically different, right? I worked at Apple. Apple's a great hardware platform, proprietary OS, proprietary hardware, provide a great experience. It's there version of a clean, well-lighted place. They'll make decisions about what goes in the app store and not. Sometimes that's controversial. That's the way they operate their business. Obviously, social networks, Facebook is, it's about friends and family, right? Um, it's about a controlled environment. It's about what happens on time on their site. It's what I would call a walled garden. I ran a walled garden when I ran an online service at Apple. Uh, that's their platform. Um, and it's a great product. You have to analyze their decisions based on the nature of their model as a platform. When you look at Google, and Google specifically, because I could say YouTube too is a different form of platform. We host everything on YouTube. But Google, our platform is basically the open web. Right? Google search, the relevance and value of Google search to our billions of users is based on the concurrent depth and breadth of the knowledge ecosystem of the web. To the extent it deteriorates, that isn't good for Google search. Our ad technologies, which are now used by some 2 million publishers around the world, the success of those ad technologies is dependent on the success of those publishers on the open web. So we have a vital intrinsic 
I would say, business interest mm -hmm. in the ongoing success and vitality of the open web. How in peril is the open web now? I mean, because a lot of publishers, um, obviously, they're feeling the pinch right now, right, from a mm -hmm. lot of different sides. I'd say it's in significant peril, and I will, I will continue to state that until I'm comfortable that it's not. Right, and, and, and as you know, we, we went down this road initially with the AMP project, which is still ongoing and has, I think, had a significant impact. But you know, how do we address simply the fact that the web isn't something you surf anymore? It's a slog through mud. You know, how do you deal with the fact that ad behaviors have become so out of hand? It's a tragedy of the commons. It's destroying a vital source of revenue for those same publishers. I don't blame the publishers for that. Who do you blame? Well, you know, you have to look at every participant in the system. The advertisers, to some extent, are at blame. You know, one of the things that we did, and, not, and I don't mean to say that. I'll, I'll get very specific with AMP. One of the decisions we made with AMP was we were going to load the content first and the ad second. Ideally, they'd both be there at the same time. But the point in doing that was recognizing, because I've been a publisher, I ran Salon Media, and I knew I had no leverage over the advertisers. If they wanted a roadblock on my site, yeah. I would do it at the right CPM. And I had no ability to test out their server performance or test out their individual impact on my page speed. Just didn't. I didn't have the technical resources to do it. So I can't blame publishers for the fact that they have, you know, ad networks that might not be super high performing. But the truth is, I, the reason we did that, and you could see it in the early days with AMP, the content would load and there'd be this big white space. And some people would say, that's a problem. And I'd say, yeah, but it's a problem that the advertising community can fix. But that's also why we came out with AMP ads, which is say there are better architectures to support high-speed, high-performant, attractive ads in the ecosystem than what we've been doing, mm -hmm. right? Why, do, why does, on average, a web page have 107 ad server requests all at the head of the page for ads at the bottom of the page that might not ever be seen, right? There are smarter ways to do this. So it is, again, a classic tragedy of the commons in that individual participants, whether they recognize it or not, are damaging the commons. And I think that's basically what's happened with the ad environment. So what mistakes do you think were made at the beginning of the web publishing industry that we're sort of feeling the effects of right now, or publishers are feeling the effects of right now? When I think of that, and particularly in the context of news publishers, mm -hmm. I have two uh, chains of thought on that. One is, which I think is absolutely the case, is that many publishers, and I don't say this as a criticism, I was there, um, and, and I can go into the details on that with publishers, did not recognize that the internet was an entirely new marketplace of ideas and information. For too many years, 20, they thought of the internet as simply an additional means of distribution for the content products and business models they already had. Okay. And that was a devastatingly bad lack of assumption on their part. Understandable. See Craigslist. Yes. And I say that understandably because put yourself in the shoes of a major, say, newspaper CEO in 1997 or 8 when his cash cow or her cash cow is classified advertising, coming out and reporting to the analyst on the street for your quarterly call and saying, oh, by the way, we're going to give away eight out of the 10 categories of classifieds because there's this guy out in San Francisco named Craig Newmark with this really ugly site that's basically going to destroy our model. Mm -hmm. 
How could they do that? You couldn't do that. So I think it's understandable. Um, I think my second thought on that is it's not clear to me how much it would have mattered. Because in introducing the internet, in putting the printing press in everyone's hands, we did create this vast marketplace of services and information. And what's really changed for the news business model is human behavior. And if you step back, simple example, if you subscribed to a newspaper in 1985, you were subscribing to the internet of your community. It was not interactive, but it was the internet of your community. It was everything you needed to live your life. And I don't mean the city council coverage. I mean, if I wanted to, you know, when my dad wanted to buy me a used car when I turned 16, he went to the classifieds of the Providence Journal. When I graduated college and moved to D.C., I found my first job in the classifieds of the Washington Post. My mom found recipes for Sunday dinner in the food section of the paper, right? We all looked for movies to go to on a Saturday night based mm -hmm. on the reviews and ads we looked at in the newspaper. All of those behaviors don't happen that way now, right? And if you just well, they ask all got people, unbundled. It all got unbundled, right? And I just ask people those questions. I don't try to explain it in terms of economic analysis mm -hmm. anymore. I just say, now tell me, your kid just turned 16. Where are you going to buy a used car for him? And no one's going to say the newspaper. They're going to say, I'm going to Craigslist or I'm going to Auto Scout 24 in Europe or wherever that might be. Perfectly understandable, right? In fact, interestingly, so the behaviors changed, and the model obviously deteriorated because the model was largely based on those behaviors of soft content access. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about the hard news. It was about the soft content. And that generally has evaporated. In fact, classifieds, I find it interesting when people make comparisons and say, like, when people say, oh, the platforms, Google destroyed the news model industry. It's, it, it, is so, it is so deeply incorrect because it just didn't happen that way. Behaviors changed. And if specifically, if you look at classifieds, which, by the way, were 30 to 40% of the revenue of the typical newspaper in the United States and pretty similar outside the United States, that's not even considered advertising anymore. Mm -hmm. It goes to the marketplaces. You know, if you do an analysis, no one says, oh, money spent on Craigslist is advertising. It's not. It's a marketplace. Right. But what about the one thing that um, publishers didn't... Um stay true to, which is charging people for access. I mean, they charged people to get the Providence Journal had a subscription business. Um, but then they sort of gave away that when they went online, not the Projo in particular, but um, newspapers in general and web publishers with this idea that content should be free and that they would make it up on scale and advertising. Um, and obviously this was promoted by Google because that's in Google's interest. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's very true. I don't know how aggressive we, we promoted that as it were, but there's no question at that time that folks were, they weren't thinking information should be free, but they were thinking with the nature of the internet that yes, greater reach would turn into greater revenue. Mm -hmm. And obviously that proved to be incorrect in the sense that you would have to drive exponentially more reach given the digital dimes to analog dollars, you know, quotient, um, to actually make up for and Those it. dimes became nickels. And those dimes became nickels. But what I would also point out, by the way, because the context is everything, you know, subscription or circulation revenue was what percentage of a newspaper's revenue in 1985? 3%? Yeah. 4%? The rule of thumb in the newspaper industry was that circulation revenue covered the cost of the newsprint itself. 
right? So it, they weren't really in the business of selling paywalled content. And you know that by their circulation practices. I mean, they gave away a lot of copies because it was an advertising business. It was a tremendously good advertising business, not a paywall subscription business. So clearly now it's different, right? And I think we're now seeing more organizations recognizing that, but mm -hmm. just recognizing that doesn't mean it's easy to solve because that comes to the next question, which is if you're asking people to pay for your content, which many are doing and should do, it raises the question of what's the value proposition? What am I paying for? Why should I be paying for this? Is there too much faith being put now? Because the industry t typically goes in it too far in one direction and then overcorrects. Is there too much faith being put now in this pivot to paid? Everyone's rolling out subscription products. I don't think there's too much faith. In fact, I think there's, but I think there's a whole lot of nuance to find success there in various ways, including the one I just mentioned. What's your value proposition? The value proposition of the Dallas Morning News in 1985 wasn't get your city council coverage here, you know, get your home subscription. It wasn't. It was, we have all the information you need to have a happy, comfortable life in Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. Right? Very different value proposition than, than the New York Times or even the Dallas Morning News. They can't, that proposition can't be that today. Their proposition has to be, what am I providing you in the local community that you can't get elsewhere that has value? So the value proposition is key. And then there's the very mechanics of, is it a subscription? Is it a membership? You know, is it a contribution? Am I actually paying for privileged access to content? Or am I paying because I'm paying forward and believe in the mission of the organization? Right. And where I am beginning to see more success at the local level, particularly with digital pure plays, is the latter. Is the, like, virtue signaling? Is like, it, 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 well, it, I've, I've not heard that phrase, but I think that... <laughs> I, I make that up? I, I think that makes sense to me, but is... Like is I'm a good it, civic. I'll, I'll give you a good example. In, in Bristol, England, uh, there's a new digital site, been in existence in like a couple of years, called the Bristol Cable. Um, um, and they... They live off of contributions, uh, memberships. Um, but I mean, that, that cannot be the future of news to like you know pass the pass the basket from pew to pew, is it? I think it can be actually, and I, I don't I, I don't particularly say pass the basket. I think memberships are a different thing. What am I getting for my membership? There's a quid pro quo there too. The interesting thing with folks who are finding success there, they're not just passing the hat, right? Passing the hat will make it work. How do you build a relationship with the community? So Bristol Cable, for instance, they don't have marketing people. They have community organizers. They have people who reach out to the community. They do town halls. They bring people in for events. They engage people in issues. Mm -hmm. They do everything they can to form a relationship with that community such that that community recognizes the value they provide to them and thus be willing to pay. Uh, will that be enough to support a news organization in most communities? I actually think it will, because here, too, the very nature, I think, of the news organization going forward is very different from the past. I had a conversation with a reporter recently. I went through the same analysis, and he said, well, that all makes sense. You know, the news product got disaggregated. There's a disaggregated market of services, and the newspaper isn't what it used to be. And he said, but what about the 800 people who used to work at the San Jose Mercury newsroom? And my answer to him was, well, that got disaggregated, too, because 80 to 90 percent of the people in that newsroom weren't doing local hard news. 
they were doing the movie reviews in the food section and the fashion section and the in the automotive section to wrap all the ads around right and yes there's there's no need for that in the local community it can be about local news can you do a lot of effective local news coverage with 5 10 15 25 people depending on the size of the market i'm sure you can and and we're seeing it a quick break here for a word from our sponsor, Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. The digital landscape is constantly evolving, and for your content to break through the noise, your publishing strategy needs to be adaptable. That's why teams at leading media companies like Condé Nast Entertainment, BuzzFeed Studios, and Group 9 Media all use Airtable to fine-tune their production process for the modern age. With Airtable, you can build the collaborative, streamlined production process you need to succeed. Try it today. Just head to Airtable.com slash Digiday to receive $50 in free credits. Now back to the episode. So what is the role of Google in supporting subscription businesses? Because I know you said before that, that Google didn't necessarily point publishers in the direction of relying uh, completely on advertising. But with policies like first click free, Google, certainly in the view of subscription pu- publishers, penalized them for um, having subscription models. It, but that too, that actually isn't, uh, if I can take you through what happened there, because okay. it's not an accurate characterization. I would say, look, uh, your average executive at Google does not understand the news business any more than your average news executive understands <laughs> algorithms at tech companies. I, they just don't, right? Um, you know, there are people like me, and obviously I think there are more folks there now who understand that nature of that beast. So it's not like they were saying 10, 15 years ago, oh, subscriptions suck. They just said, well, you know, it's an open environment, get enough reach, advertising dollars, maybe it'll all work. They just didn't ever think any further from that. First click free, here was the origin of first click free. By the way, at the time it was created, there were probably fewer than a dozen paywalled properties, right? But they were struggling with a policy that we have in search that continues to be a policy called anti-cloaking, which basically says if you want the search engine to index your content, you have to show the search engine the same material that the user will see, right? For the obvious reason mm-hmm. that, you know, I can put up a nice site of, of green yeah. vegetables and sure. then sell you powder uh, to make you live to 150. Well, a paywall technically is cloaking in the sense that it's showing the user a snippet of the right. article and not the full article. Um, and what they preferred is for us to index the full article. And so what we said as a workaround was give first click free and we'll take and index everything. Right. Now, over time, that changed. And certainly, we got further mm-hmm. wisdom in the last several years of studying this. And again, thanks to more collaboration with publishers, in this case, the New York Times and the Financial Times, we did a bunch of analysis, we did a bunch of experiments, because what we were concerned with, I was very comfortable saying, let's go to flexible sampling. What I was very uncomfortable with is is publishers not fully understanding the dynamics and getting themselves into trouble. Because if you very quickly went to a hard paywall, which happened in some cases, the mm-hmm. Wall Street Journal flipped to a hard paywall. They said, we don't like your first click fee, we're going to a hard paywall. Well, they harvested some immediate gain and circulation uptick, but they had a long-term significant drop, which they're still trying to correct for. Because guess what? They taught their users, they taught the users of Google anyways, to look at WSJ.com URLs as paywalls and didn't click. It's a learned behavior. Sure. 
So I was very concerned, as well as the team, we were very concerned of how do we go with flexible sampling and give appropriate guidance to publishers so that they can experiment and find the right level. The right level is typically not zero. You know, maybe if you're a very niche publication that has very high value content, but if you're doing general interest news coverage, you have to provide sampling. Sure. As was always the case, right? It's just that your samples happen in a different way in the world of print. You put, you know, you put free copies on the seats of airline mm -hmm. planes, um, um, you know, and you made it easy for people to pick up a copy for 25 cents uh, before you tried to get them to a full subscription. Same thing today. So just to build off that, so Google has long been involved in the monetization uh, for publishers, thanks to DoubleClick, thanks to AdSense, and, and so on and so forth. Oh, most of it on the advertising side. Now more publishing is going towards um, a multi-revenue uh, model that involves subscriptions of some form, right? Meters and memberships and all sorts of different, there's a diversity there. What is the role of Google now to to help publishers drive towards those those paid goals versus advertising. It's it's typically been in advertising. Um, and by the way, I prefer not to use the term help. It, it sounds oddly patriarchal. Well, I that's how the term, well, I, but it's, you know, again, and I say that advisedly. That's where we because, are. Because, you know, we're not, I have, I do have, I have had publishers come to me and say, Richard, just tell us exactly what to do to be successful. And I'll say, I can't do that, right? Every publication is different, your market's different, right? I can't tell you that. What I can do and what we are trying to do is how do we enable success through various means and capabilities? Are there further things we can do in advertising to generate more advertising. I'm saying advertising is going to go mm -hmm. away as a revenue source for news publications. Many are down on advertising different. as a core um, sustainable model going forward, mostly because Google and, and, and Facebook take a lot of, I'm sure you hear all the time the statistics about um, Google and Facebook taking. Uh, I, I, do, I do that, but even there, and again, I, I, I just, I, you know, I did a Medium post recently off of a keynote I gave uh, in Europe. Um, and my tweet on it was, how can we effectively design the future of news based on a broken understanding of the past, All right? So we have to be careful with the memes. We have to be careful with playing, in a sense, the blame game. And even the duopoly notion so is a meme. So what is the meme? What the, the, the duopoly meme, explain to me why. Because so, it is used as shorthand as it's not our fault. Google and Facebook did this to us. They ruined yeah. our businesses. So again, as I said, if you go through the business model, right, we saw a whole lot of it go from classified advertising into internet marketplaces. Frankly, that's really not part of our business at all. Do we have an effective advertising business, both through Google search ads, extreme? If you're looking for a refrigerator, you good. will come to Google first to look <laughs> for a refrigerator and maybe you'll cook on an ad, right? Yeah, that's a good business to be in. But there are other huge portions of it where that ad revenue is on other sites. And yes, we do have ad technologies for that. They use our tools, I said, 2 million publishers. But what gets not calculated when people state the duopoly or state Google's presumed percentage is they don't include the fact that, for instance, last year, we sent $12.7 billion to those publishers using our ad platforms at revenue shares of 70% and beyond to the publisher. You send big checks to publishers, although you still, 
I don't know. I'd have to go back to the, the, the figures of the overall industry. But I mean, Google is still, you know, we take it, a big piece. You take a big piece. You're yeah. a successful business. No Let's, question. Um, no, and I, there's it, no apologizing for that. And, 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 and won't. It's a great, you know, just but, as but I said, I, Craig, you know, to, Craig, if I may divert, yeah, you know, Craig Newmark did this outrageously generous thing of giving $20 million to He NYU. got a lot of shit for it, too. And yeah. he got a lot of crap for it. And, you know, I very seldom engage in Twitter battles. In that case, I said, I can't, I can't bear that. Craig is a guy who is walking the talk. And by the way, he didn't destroy the news business. He offered a great service to his community with Craigslist. Well, I mean, a lot of... And the- that had secondary impacts on the news industry. So be it. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, look, a lot of publishers need to sort of take control of their own futures instead of blaming exogenous forces, right? I mean, at the end of the day, like, I remember, I've covered Google for many years, and I remember I would meet with different entrepreneurs over the years, and I would, I would always ask the question, like, well, well, why won't Google just, like, kill your business or whatever? And, and, and one finally said to me, you know, Google's the environment, it's not the competition. Um, and you just deal with the environment. You control the things you can control. You don't control the things that you can't control. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I, and again, I'm, you know, I, all my background is in news. Um, I'm optimistic about the future of news. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm extremely optimistic at, at, at those who are, are being... Are you more optimistic now than you were, say, like four years ago? I am actually, simply for the fact that now people, I think, have gotten over the hump of recognizing that the internet is a different marketplace of information and ideas and services. Right. And they're now we're seeing legacy publishers now finally beginning to grapple with that and look at subscriptions and look at their value propositions. Some will make it, some will not. But we're also now seeing more pure plays come into play, you know, who have a better understanding of the market to begin with. And that's one of my objectives, my probably my leading uh, objective with GNI, and we have these internal objectives we set up against it. It's the Google News Initiative. It's the Google News Initiative. Yeah. Sorry to go to the. Uh, the initials, is is how do we at the local level identify and nurture success at the local level such that there are models for other entrepreneurs to follow, whether they be for-profit or non-profit entrepreneurs. And I think that I'm seeing, I'm, 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 you know, through the dust of disruption, as it were, I'm seeing a lot of seedlings of success there. You know, Village Media in Eastern Canada, fascinating company, fascinating entrepreneur in Jeff Elgey, Right. He has nine digital pure plays in nine cities in eastern Canada that are profitable, including in cities where he's competing against local papers. But he came in with a very clean approach to what it meant to be a local news organization, what it meant to do custom advertising for his local merchants, how he engaged his audiences in different ways and found that success. You know, so it can be there, but he also didn't come into it with the notion that somehow it was going to be, you know, that his business in Trois-Rivières was going to be a $50 million a year business. Mm-hmm. It didn't need to be a $50 million a year business for him to be successful and profitable. And then in a sense, that's one of the challenges that the legacy news industry is facing. And it's, a, it's an inescapable one, Right. The legacy newspapers that became chains, for instance, they didn't become chains because they were looking to figure out how to provide better news properties. They became chains because it was an incredibly good advertising business. Mm -hmm. And they found through greater efficiencies, they could improve margins. 
but they're now in a position of having to recognize that the business simply is not going yeah. to be well, as big news, as what it once was. Have, it has to get smaller. Like when everyone goes back to it, I don't remember whether it was even 400 or 800, but the San Jose Mercury News, that's never coming back. It's never coming back. It, it right. will not. That's right. And, and like it's as not you even out, necessary for it to come need, back. I bet the San Jose Mercury News had like a Tokyo correspondent and stuff. It, there's no need for it. That's right. There's a need to cover Silicon Valley for sure on a local level. And I don't, and the housing and transportation and all sorts of scooters. I haven't been there in a while. Apparently scooters have taken over the entire area. Um, I haven't seen them. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's one of those memes that the internet produced. Okay, see, it might not even exist. I just it. As far as I know, San Francisco has just been <laughs> taken over by scooters. Um, Maybe it should be. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you gave an interview, uh, I think it was to the Times, um, where you had said, you know, you compared your role versus Campbell Brown at uh, Facebook, and, and you said that I can make change. And, and you said, basically, you didn't think the same over there, and you said you feel for her. How is your role different? Because I think a lot of people, when they lump Facebook and Google together, I often hear that, you know, they send people, they send very nice people to us to say, say very nice things. And then they make decisions that are completely contrary to those nice things. Yeah. You know, in that quote in the Times, was it was much longer than what it got cut <laughs> I've heard into. I've heard reporters do that. Um, and it became a kind of a snarky comment that wasn't what I intended at all. <laughs> what I actually said was, yes, I do feel for her because I think she's in a very difficult position. Um, and it's simply this. As I mentioned, platforms are different. Facebook is a closed platform. It is, in effect, a walled garden. The, the, the direct comparison is Instant Articles and AMP. Yeah. They came out with Instant Articles and said, you want your content to be fast on our site, use Instant Articles. And by the way, here are the rules. Here's what kind of advertising you can do, not do, what networks you can use, not network, so on and so forth. It's on our site. Fine. Mm -hmm. That's the way you approach it if you're a closed environment, as they are. Right. Whereas we took the approach that, no, we want the Internet to be fast. We want the web to be fast. So let's come up with an open sourced approach to fast pages where no one sets the rules outside of basic technical parameters. Right. Whatever advertising you want to do, do, you know, as long as it satisfies the technical parameters, e.g. content loads before ads. So be it. Right. And so what I meant there and what I actually said there was, yeah, I feel for her in that she's in the difficult position of trying to defend a closed environment with publishers who, frankly, mm -hmm. will, will rely on and be successful only in an open environment. Quick break to tell you about starting out. This is our podcast hosted by Shireen Patak. Shireen talks to leaders in the marketing industry about the big ideas that inform their business decisions. We've had guests like Jeff Goodby, Linda Boff, and Mark Pritchard. This week, Shireen is hosting the CMO of Northwestern Mutual, Aditi Gokhale. Give it a listen. I also wonder, you know, Google has a long history with publishing. And thanks, you know, in large part to DoubleClick, it has seen the inside of the publishing business quite up close, whereas Facebook doesn't have that insight. And they, I don't know if the word is stumbled, but, you know, they, they quickly uh, arrived in a, in a position where they were playing an outsized role in the news industry. And I don't think that they were necessarily internally prepared for that or really even understood publishers' businesses. I think that's true. Uh, and look, I think we've, 
we a benefited the fact that our model, as I said, of, of being more open of the open platform of the web is is by definition the better place to be. But we learned along the way. Yes, we've been at it to, at this a long time, um, and there was many gradual steps. I can tell you back six, seven years or so ago, you know, I said to folks internally, because obviously there were challenges in the ecosystem and publishers were challenged and unhappy. I said, you know, I think we got to step up our game. You know, right now, it seems to me the primary contact point between Google and a publisher is the account exec on our ad technologies, right? So if we really want to drive and enable further success with news organizations and publishers, then we have to engage in many different ways beyond selling our ad technologies. Mm -hmm. We have to understand their businesses. We have to understand their product needs. We have to understand how we can take and evolve and tune our own products that enable them in a healthier ecosystem. It didn't happen overnight. And the collaboration, you know, we started collaboration with AMP. We set up working groups with AMP. And I specifically used the term working groups. And say, no, these are not advisory groups. They're working groups. We want people to dig in on this. We want to collaborate. We want this to be two-way street. To me, the primary benefit of that was getting our own Google executives to have a deeper understanding of the nature of the business and the nature of what we needed to do. Mm -hmm. Outside of um, having ad tech lead with publishers, any mistakes you would point to over the years that, um, that you would cop to for rubbing publisher feelings a little raw? I think just not being, you know, again, it's, 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 you don't know what you don't know, right? Um, if you don't understand the nature, you know, and, and, and it was, it, this was more clear to me. I had, you know, my span of time at Google is almost about nine years, a little bit more. There are two stints. I was there earlier as an advisor to Eric Schmidt and Jonathan Rosenberg. I left to run Salon Media, which I had helped get off the ground in the late 90s. You know, so, you know, when I came back to Google, I had that, I'd, and my intent was work in the trenches, understand true nature of the business and how it works today, right? That was really valuable to me, but that was obviously, that's just one person. So I think as much as anything, it was just not knowing what we didn't know and not necessarily realizing how important it was for us to know that. And that's a progression. Mm -hmm. That's a progression. It's not like we're not going to make mistakes. Like, it's what I say about the algorithms. The algorithms aren't perfect. They won't ever be. You know, it's an evolving progression of effort against an evolving ecosystem. And the same is going to be true for all the issues we talk about. Mm -hmm. So final thing is on um, the spread of disinformation, misinformation, propaganda um, through the Internet. Because I think a lot of the promises of the Internet um, about it being more open, people are going to be more informed, all of a sudden we're starting to question those um, and you have history, I'm going back because I used to cover email marketing. You ran Goodmail, which is actually a very interesting company at the time because email and very similar was was an open system that quickly became abused because that's what happens, I think, a lot of times with open systems. And that's why people end up questioning open systems. Um, explain a little bit your experience at Goodmail and whether that is applicable at all to the fight against disinformation, misinformation, and propaganda? I think it's informative in the sense that if you're not cognizant of the trust of the user base in whatever you're providing, in that case, delivering email, in today's case, say, delivering what we hope would be authoritative content, 
uh, that, that the trust of the user matters. And that if you don't ambitiously and aggressively pursue how to build that trust, you can lose it all. Okay. And I don't say that hyperbolically. I mean, to me, the biggest question facing our societies is this. How can open societies and open democracies survive and thrive in a world of unfettered free expression? And it sounds paradoxical, because we all believe in free expression, or not all, well, we in always, our country believe already, in free expression. Well, we previously, but uh, we've always believed that more speech is better. That's right. Right. And I, I think some people are starting to question that because, and and I hear that, and 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 for the most part, it gives me concern. It, we should think about that. And the the connection to me back with good mail, is there is a greater value than ever in the world of information expression, to in a sense own your words, to be transparent about who you are if you want to be trusted to help people understand the provenance of what you are spewing into the ecosystem, right? That would be hugely helpful across the board, hugely helpful to us to have a better sense of that. That's what I was trying to get at when, when I helped co-found the Trust Project, was how do we get more signals mm-hmm. out there to understand the nature of the source of expression, not to constrain it, but I've always believed in the notion of own your own words. If you want someone to believe in you, then be willing to stand up and say, I said this, and this is why, and this is why I believe this, and here are my cited facts. That's what makes journalism at its best work. Mm-hmm. And so when we get concerned about free expression quotes being out of hand, I hope our response to that is to address it with a further iteration of the norms of what trusted expression such as journalism should be and does not turn into the very dangerous ground of Mm -hmm. trying to conflate it. And sadly, that's what we're seeing now in many spots in the world. Fake news, misinformation, disinformation, however big an issue that might be in reality, and, and I'm not saying it's a small one, it has also become a stimulus for regulation and laws around the world which come dangerously close and in many cases go across mm-hmm. the board in terms of constraining free expression. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that a lot of publishers are now coming um, over on the side of regulation and, and pushing Google and, and, and also Facebook to play more of an active role in choosing truth and what is what is real and what is truly fake. And it's, that's a concerning, and, and if that is indeed a trend, it's a deeply concerning one. Because, and, and not all feel that way. Like Marty Barron said something that I thought, the editor of the Washington Post, someone asked him about regulation of folks like Google with regard to, say, fake news. And Marty's answer to that was, if they're coming after Google, they're coming after us. Right? Mm-hmm. So we need to look at these things carefully. Algorithmic review board. I look at that and say, look, algorithms are used in so many consequences in our world today, so many environments, so many circumstances. Yes, on the internet with folks like Google and Facebook. By the way, not I don't know a publisher who isn't using some degree of personal recommendation technology to tune their sites. There are algorithms everywhere. You go outside of publishing, algorithms are driving uh, decisions about whether or not I get a home loan, whether I get car insurance, what medical treatment I get, and whether or not it gets paid for. Mm-hmm. 
Algorithms are everywhere, so we should recognize that, and that's important. And should that be addressed? Yes, right? And interesting, I think Google, because we're in such a spotlight, have been at the forefront of that. You know, we say it's a 160-page policy document on Google search that guides the raters who help us with our algorithms in terms of determining the authoritativeness of a source, right? You can take, any third party can take and assess. We show our work every day on every query. You can, with machines, assess that and come back and criticize us for what we do, right? But there are so many areas where that's not the case. What you want to be careful about when people, whatever their political motivation might be, and often you, and you do have to look at the motivation, mm -hmm. what are they trying to achieve? Are they trying to simply shore up their own position in the world in an environment which is open to far more competition? And what's their political motivation? So when someone gets to those questions of algorithmic view, like free expression, is be careful what you look for. Right. Who decides who decides what? Who decides what the algorithm should be? Mm -hmm. you know, who decides what's authoritative and what's not? Who decides what is acceptable free expression and what's not? And these are important questions, but I think we also have to be just as cautious, if not more cautious, to make sure that we don't take steps particularly in the legal regulatory environment, that have deeply concerning negative consequences. Because the one big concern in the public policy environment, as we all know, and I've worked in that environment as well, is easy to come forward with a purported solution. Very, very hard to step back and tune it and address it if you got it wrong. And the unintended consequences are, are typically giant. I said it was the last question, but I actually have one more because I'm legally required to ask you about GDPR. Um, is GDPR in the long run going to be a good thing for the open internet? You know, I, I'm not the best expert on all <laughs> the nuances of GDPR. I mean, I think clearly, look, again, here too in the world of algorithms and the world of data, uh, should there be ample means for us as individual citizens to be comfortable with how that information is used? Certainly. Um, and so I think there can be very good steps forward in this regard. Hard for me to make a complete analysis of GDPR. You know, interestingly, as we advise, you know, we, we had a greater understanding of the means and, and technologies necessary to address it and could. Um, that's not necessarily available uh, to all the players in the ecosystem as readily as it was for us. Um, but, you know, as I said, I mean, we practice in a sense what we speak, what we say, Look, you've always been able to view your data, not always, but certainly the last several years, you can view all the activity, all the data that we have on you. And yeah, you can download that five gigabyte file and say, oh God, a five gigabyte file. But we also are very clear on how we use it. We're very clear on how we don't turn that information over third parties and never have. But obviously we have to be continuing good stewards of that to, I think, maintain our position in the environment. To me, back to the word trust, Google's position in the ecosystem, particularly with things like Google search, is entirely based on trust, right? Billions of people come to us every day. They do so because they trust us to do the right thing. To the extent that we don't, things can change and change rapidly. And I said that recently and someone asked, but Richard, Richard, Google, you know, you're like 90% of the search share in Europe. And I said, well, you know, in an earlier life, I was head of a search engine called Excite, who was number two 
to a larger, more successful search engine called Yahoo that were kings of the world, and we could not figure out how to unseat them. Well, what happened? Two guys in a garage in Palo Alto came up with Google and blew us both away. So maintaining the trust of our users is, I think, core to what we do. And if we make missteps, then we'll pay the price. I think that's what drives us anyways at Google. But that's our model. Okay. Richard, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. And thanks in particular to Nick Cicero, who tweeted just this week, just finished at Rich Antonello episode on the Digiday podcast. Hashtag must listen for anyone in the media business today. Fire emoji and then an emoji that I think is a mobile phone. Thank you very much, Nick. And thank you all uh, for listening. This podcast is produced by Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, please subscribe, tweet about it, and also leave us a review. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and Anchor.fm. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Thank you.